North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Uh, Dr. Coons, it's been a little while since we recorded, and we have had a flurry of email come in asking us a variety of questions, so we're just going to go right at it today, see how much of that we can get through. First off, new listener here says, uh, bringing up myself up to speed as quickly as possible, sorry for the long question, as a single man in my mid-30s, I'm having a harder time finding my place not only in the world, but in the church. The world would see somebody like me devolve into hedonism. But at the same time, it feels like the church has no use for somebody who doesn't have a family. I struggle with sins, temptations, and past decisions that have been obstacles to finding a wife. Not that I don't try some. And it only seems to be getting harder. 
the guilt and shame I've often felt seems to be overwhelming, much like I'm the only person left at the kids' table. Some would say, just settle for somebody because anybody is better than nobody, yet others would point me away from the church and Christ's teaching. I've been seeing how sin, divorce, promiscuity, culture, love is love, no consequences in sex, and personal preferences, figure your life out, get married later, are ravaging the family, and in turn, the health of the church. How would one reconcile this, and what role is there for single people in the church? So thank you for thank you for writing in. There's a lot in there. And I want to start just by uh, congratulating you on trying to catch up. I always find that impressive <laughs> when people catch all the way up and then uh, at least ask me questions. And I'm like, I don't remember what I used to know about that. Maybe. Isn't that funny? Uh, I love that. And, and 100 plus episodes <laughs> now. I mean, it's something to boast about a little bit. Uh, we, we've been here for a while. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I, I would start out by saying that you need to first tell the difference between people's ability to assign value and the reality of value. So in your own lifetime, it may be that everything that you do is not actually recognized by people for the value that it has. And in fact, Jesus actually predicts that your life is lived that way. That is, that it is lived in secret from men. And that's actually part of the plan here. And so Paul can say then, same idea, your life is hidden with Christ and God. So the things about your life that are worthwhile, that are good, whether you are married or unmarried, are probably largely, if not entirely, hidden from the eyes of men. And that is actually as it should be. I mean, if you think about our Lord, who is obviously also an unmarried man in his 30s, when he begins his ministry, he is not recognized for who he is. And that is the way, that is the shape that his life has. And when he receives recognition, the recognition is some positive, some of it negative. So there's no, there's no time where as a disciple of Jesus, you should expect to come into some state of life in which you are widely recognized by everyone for the good things that you are doing. You're, you're seeking recognition and honor from God. And if men give you recognition or honor, that's fine, but it just doesn't matter that much. So what you want to think about instead of the value that the church may or may not perceive in you and congregations are going to vary, churches are going to vary in this way, you need to focus instead on what does God actually call you to do. When you look at, for instance, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has a certain understanding of why his singleness is good because there is a lack of distraction that he has. So this is something that Pastor Fisk and I were talking about just before we began recording is how people in the past were able to achieve so much more because of a lack of distraction. Well, even before social media, there were families and and care for families. And, you know, it, it is a man who has a wife is anxious to know how he can please his wife, right? Paul says. So what you want to think about is, am I actually able to exercise self-control? That's a goal for any Christian. Can I have self-control outside of marriage. If I can, then that's actually a gift. And I need to pursue the other things that God has given me to do. If I can't exercise self-control and I can't tell, and it's not my business from what you said in your question, whether you're exercising self-control or you're being plagued by any number of the demons usually coming through your phone that may be attacking you as a man. Okay. So if you can't exercise self-control, then you do need to marry if you need to marry, then I would say this, that 
certainly the listeners can be of some help and hopefully other people in your congregation or people that you meet can be some help in connecting faithful Lutherans to each other. This is something that I, I don't have a matchmaking service, but I try to do when I can because people want to uh, live lives in families and that you would not do that in order simply to have some wife or some kids that other people could recognize as good. That's not the point. These things are good in themselves without the recognition of men. So you you got a couple of questions to ask yourself, and I'm sure you already have, and you probably have answers to them. And if you want to pursue marriage, then I think it's incumbent on the household of God to help you do that, to help make that a reality for you. That is, that's kind of a separate question, your own life, from why the church does or does not recognize the value of singleness. And that is partly because the Lutheran church does not have any particular formal cognizance of roles for people who are single. Now, it used to. Deaconesses used to have to be single. If they married, they were free to marry. They didn't have a perpetual vow of singleness, of celibacy, as maybe a Roman Catholic sister might. But if they wanted to marry, then they stopped being deaconesses. Similarly, a formal role that we could recognize would be service, especially in difficult or dangerous situations. So I would like someone to minister to the drug addicted people on Kensington Avenue in Philadelphia. That may or may not be a guy that has, you know, four kids and a wife to support. So these roles are not because God doesn't value them or even that his entire church doesn't value them. I would not confuse, especially, you know, your life in your local congregation, whatever that may be with whether there's anyone in God's church who recognizes something as a value. But it is the case that when there aren't formal setups for things, people tend to neglect them. You get what you plan for very often in life. And if the church doesn't plan for the value of singleness, then it doesn't receive the value of singleness. One of the things that I've uh, noticed about the few guys we have that are already at the Hebron Collegium, uh, gap year school for men here in Rockford, um, is a, a struggle with the desire to be married that often is uh, commingled with some sort of semi-traumatic life experience. And this can be yeah. just growing up on movies. This can be coming from a home that's pretty rough. But what I see to be the, the need for all of them, first and foremost, as I in this I'm engaging them individually, uh, is an acceptance of their place now yeah. as the key to their being able to enjoy their place later. And I have trouble conveying this. It doesn't seem to, to click when we have conversations, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It means that it's, it's part of the wrestling that they're growing toward is to understand their desire to be married has in some form become an idolatry that leads them to despise the present, yeah. which doesn't make the marriage right. itself bad or the, or the potential marriage bad. Uh, it just means that when they get there, they're going to face the same, uh, you used the word demons earlier, they're going to face the same haunting uh, emotion, struggle, trial, yeah, temptation. That's right. It's all still going to be there. And what they're, what I encourage them to consider is that they're here to do is to become okay today. And I can, I can shift this into, I'm having my own little uh, temptation discipline moment with regard to a major financial decision that is neither here nor there. 
but what when I could remember that tomorrow it might all end, it, it kind of it kind of puts it back in perspective. And of course, you know, I, I tend to live my life not believing Jesus will come back today because he hasn't yet, even though I would like him to, and I look for mm-hmm. that day. Yeah. Uh, but all the same, uh, to keep it in that perspective, today is the only day that I'm given to live. And so if today I'm single, then singleness is good. And it behooves me to receive what the scriptures say about that, what wisdom says about that, even while I might pray for a, a different vocation. And it reminds me a little of when Paul says to the slave, the Christian slave, you know, it's not wrong for you to be in your position. Oh, mm-hmm. you, you can you can get your freedom? Do it. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Right. But it's not necessarily better. And then he, he does say that about uh, about the marriage situation, that he who is single uh, is even better. I also think that to recognize, uh, I mean, everything you said about looking for the recognition of men is, is spot on. Um, double down on that, that in a time of utter, utter upheaval with regard to all categories, all symbols, all natural philosophical truths, where almost no one is on the same page as anyone about anything, yeah. to expect some sort of uniform cheering for your attempt to find something uniform, which <laughs> itself is the very thing that was rejected that has yeah. led to this upheaval, right. is is hoping, really not against hope, but beyond hope for something that, that uh, you shouldn't see. The, the patriarchs stood apart. They were different. That's and, right. Yeah. And that's what you're being called to be, even if you're not going to necessarily be the father of children, which you may or may not be. Um, a patriarch of your own mind, uh, of the culture that will survive, of the ark that you're there to build where you are. Um, and then, so then that, that leads back to, and uh, you know, the place in the church, and you kind of riffed on this for a second. Mm-hmm. But like, um, there's another uh, gentleman who I had a conversation with recently. He's, he's not a member at Hebron, but he, he visited and stayed with us for a couple of days and, and just checked the place out. And um, he was expressing how difficult it is for him also to, to fit in the congregation that he's in, and it has nothing to do with the liturgy. It has nothing to do with whether they have confessional subscription or the sacrament. And just yeah. has everything to do with a number of people um, just not seeming to care about the things that this podcast cares about. And that also yeah. points to the time of upheaval that we're in. Um, I, I recently spoke at the Higher Things Youth uh, event in in Valparaiso, and I talked about yep. praying the Psalms and uh, reading the, the Proverbs, and I was taken to task later on Twitter by someone who attended it uh, for being, I was called uh, too law heavy. Um, and it it was like he did, well, I should say this way. Yeah. So I went and I looked at his feed, right? Yeah. It was, yeah. It was nothing but baseball. Nothing but baseball. <laughs> And like at that point, I'm done talking to him. I, I don't think on Twitter I'm going to convince him yeah. anyway. He certainly didn't convince yeah. me. But sure. it, it illustrated the point for me that like you mentioned distractions, right? Yeah. I, I, I like a home run as much as the next guy. Um, but at a time such as this, uh, it just it seems that there is indeed in the churches a spirit of malaise that is uh, what I think Luther would have called it carnal contentment. Um, that uh, it can be difficult for a young man who's trying to, to find his way to right. walk upon the path that the Lord has prescribed and, and delivered right. him into uh, when right. so many around are just sort of, uh, well, lukewarm. Yeah, and, and your vocation, 
whether you whether you like that vocation today or not always contains crosses and afflictions i mean that's there is no vocation you could you could get married and in and in 10 years you can have seven children and you know what they're going to complain about the fact that you have seven kids just like they think you're weird now because you're not married so that that's the way that life goes when it is lived with christ and so that's a that's actually a sign of blessing that you have crosses in the way and that you have afflictions because if satan didn't hate you didn't understand that you were a soldier of christ then he wouldn't be attacking you and it wouldn't feel like an attack it would feel instead like it was easy right that that civil war between your flesh and your spirit that paul talks about in romans 7 only exists in christians so you're you're blessed in your afflictions another thing to consider is this that one of those afflictions may be the relative ignorance of christ's church also of your local congregation about the nature of the warfare going on around them it's possible that this has always been the case it's also possible that it wasn't the case before it's certain that it is not your job to make everyone aware of everything of which you are aware. And it may actually be a wonderful thing for you to talk to someone who is cognizant of things like the weather. And especially if they're older, it's a little different for me than if it's like a 28-year-old guy and he's still totally wrapped up in sports. But if it's a 78-year-old guy and he wants to tell me about how the Phillies are doing, you know, I mean... <laughs> Life is a little simpler and slower for him and, you know, and I, and I love him for it. So these are things where the exercise of love also involves handling and reaching out to people that are really not at all like you. And that's actually a good thing for you. And it tests you. Are you, do you want to live the life that is in Christ, which is always a life that is transforming oneself for the sake of others? like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, then a life where what you are looking for actually always comes to you, which is not a life in Christ. So those are, these are all, I think, things to think about. And I hope both stimuli, that is thorns pushing you in the right direction, but also encouragements because you wouldn't have any of these problems if you weren't blessed in Christ. They, these problems don't come to men who are walking on the broad way that leads to destruction. Am I wrong in uh, thinking, uh, suggesting, and, and teaching that if indeed you are a young person who desires marriage, yeah. you are safe to assume that God desires that for you, generally speaking, yeah. and that if it is not the case, then he will strengthen you to be glad for that at some point in your right. life, even if not right. at the present? Right. Because I, I think that, I think that, what, what you're looking at when you're looking at the possibility of marriage is several kinds of discernment about yourself, about your potential spouse, or about the fact that you won't have a spouse. And some of it is relatively simple. Paul refers to whether you can control yourself in 1 Corinthians 7. So if that's not the case, then can you control yourself without a spouse? Okay, you can't. So look for a spouse. It sounds very practical. I think that part of the idolatry of marriage in our time is its relative rarity or its rarity in a kind of general functionality. 
So even when people are married, it looks obviously dysfunctional, right? I think I've mentioned this before on the show that, you know, that I just, like, there are just jokes that older people make about how the wife is the head of the household that I don't find funny because it just has, it just appears to be reality. So it's like, you know, commenting on the direction of the sky relative to the ground. So these are things where you may be looking for something that you want for very good reasons of which other people seem to be blissfully unaware, unaware too of how hard it is to find a spouse. And, but th that, that is not an occasion for just throwing your hands up in despair. You throw your hands up in prayer and you ask God when you have afflictions to either relieve the afflictions or to give you his strength in your weakness. Those are the two options for anything in life any vocation, any difficulty, any problem, either take it away or make me one who is able to bear it. Hmm. But yeah. all of it is going to be a test, not so much of whether you are able to handle everything that is thrown your way, but how much his strength can do, which is why the, the experience of the life in Christ is an experience of walking you know, continually from Gethsemane to Golgotha. You ask, he answers. Maybe not in the way you're looking for, but you ask, he answers. Yeah, uh, lifting up holy hands in prayer is key. And then this is where the praying of the Psalms I continue to find to be nigh on, uh, to, to use a, a wrong term, magical. This is not magical, um, but miraculous. Uh, yeah. Always providing the words I didn't know I needed, mm -hmm. and even some that I would have thought were wrong. Until I realized that they're the inspired word of God, and so they must right. be right. Uh, the Sons of Solomon Discipline, sonsofsolomon.net, is developed to help you begin this process. And specifically for those of you who are in the I would like a family scenario, the uh, dinnertime or evening psalms, I mean, it's, it's broken into four parts throughout the day, morning, midday, before dinner, and, and uh, compline at night. Uh, the evening psalms of 127 and, um, well, particularly 128, uh, is there to be about your family. And if you don't have one yet, that, that's all the more reason to pray that psalm with some regularity. Blessed is the man whose trust is in Jesus Christ. His wife shall be a fruitful vine around his table. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to adopt that as a daily prayer discipline in faith. Mm -hmm. knowing that that's, that's the prayer God's given you to pray for this very moment and right. trusting that he will surely bring it to pass or he will provide you a great joy in seeing that the brotherhood within the church, that the sons you have of the next generation in the church are also a fulfillment of this, that, that the true table is the altar of Christ from which we eat and drink. So in any case, you know, there's that pitch for you. Uh, there are many psalms that are of value, uh, but those ones in the discipline were selected especially to be for, for such a time as this. So any more? You want to go on to another question? Yeah, just one little historical note is that the past was had a different idea of a man's course of life than a woman's course of life. And I think that that is important to remember, too, that a woman, a woman is biologically limited in her capacity to have a family in a way that a man is not and past, not even civilizations, but our own civilization, recognize this in making it more acceptable, certainly for a man to marry for the first time when he's 42, 
than a woman. For instance, Wilhelm Seeler, who's one of the founding fathers of the Missouri Synod, marries, I think, when he's 44 <laughs> to uh, a girl who's 19. And that was not called creepy. That was called, you can provide a life for her. <laughs> so that was the idea. Uh, because men's lives take a variety of different courses on that way, if God intends them to have a family, of being able to provide for that family. And Sealer, having been a soldier and several other things before he settled down to a family life, took a little while to get there. But that was recognized in the past, certainly, and I think, therefore, probably should be considered as an option today rather than thinking that both men and women, if they're not married by the time they're, you know, 35, it's all over. So that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also keep in mind the upcoming release of the new website, A Brief History of Power Matchmaking Service. Uh, yes. <laughs> right? Uh, that, that's a fun one to contemplate. All right, uh, next question. Hello, Dr. Kuntzrev Fisk. I listened to your podcast, Extremely Naive Narcissism, and was edified. When you described how some people view others as, by nature, good people and expect that they want the best for others, only to be shocked when they absolutely are not that way, I could relate. When I was younger in the faith and wanted to think the best in people and stop being so misanthropic as I was before, I found myself dumbfounded time to time at the audacity of others, especially unbelievers, as they would violate my trust, lie, cheat, steal, etc. Why does a certain congressman, congresswoman's trip to Taiwan just come into mind right now as, as I read? Anyway, <laughs> moving, moving forward. Thinking, quote, his question saying, thinking, yeah. how could anyone do such a thing? Uh, I knew what the Bible says about the wickedness of man, yet somehow still wound up thinking that way. Now I've grown out of that, but I still find myself having subconscious remnants of that mindset, having to correct myself at times. What resources or biblical passages would you recommend to make someone less naive or correct this warped style of thinking? Is it possible that you could expound more on this topic on Brief History Power? If not, any info or resources sent to my email would be appreciated. And if I can uh, take take a brief stab at this, just yep. to, to add that, you know, I continue to have the same problem. I, I, I mentioned, you know, somewhat cynically, uh, the thieving nature of our elite class and the fact that they're really just trotting it out in front of us at the moment to mm -hmm. the uh, ignorance of many, um, the rest of us, what you going to do about it? Um, right. And and yet, nonetheless, I just can't believe, like deep down, I just can't believe they're <laughs> actually that, that, that mean, right? And another thing that I've been really struggling with uh, theologically, you know, wrestling with as, an, as a concept um, is... Something we've done in Lutheran dogmatics, which is good but has become bad, and uh, this is the the acknowledgement that in original sin, we all share the same flesh. Mm -hmm. There's no sinner who is worse than any other sinner. Um, the Sermon on, on the Mount applies to everybody, and you've heard it said, but I say to you, and oh my, I guess I'm on the wrong side of this until I get forgiven. Like, that's real. Somehow that has dispersed from us a biblical category. It's an Old Testament category, but it's a biblical category of of the wicked, and the wicked being a people who do not believe, who do not repent, who are not just sinners; right. they're in fact wicked, and right. that is all they are. Versus the righteous, who I would understand as the justified, who are still sinners. They miss the mark, but they don't walk in the sinner's way. They don't, they don't want to be in that way. They want to be in the way of, of God, the way of Torah. Yeah. And 
I'm not sure how to reconcile that with Lutheran dogmatics without getting accused of somehow like denying, you know, our, our views on sin or sure. becoming pharisaical or being told that I'm pharisaical because, you know, I, I hate the sin and I hate the wicked for their wickedness, right? Uh, and, and so, um, but I'm, I'm also compelled by the language of the scriptures itself to, to reckon with this and to say, it looks like we've kind of taken a, a little pen and erased some things um, from, uh, from the scriptures here. So, um, oh, interesting. We have 10 minutes and then Zoom's going to make us restart. I've never had that happen with Zoom before. They must have added in a, a new... Uh, limited time thing. So uh, you get, you'll get your answer in, and then we'll have to restart a new meeting and pick up there. So the the issue here is that the Bible always gets to correct everything else, and the problem is a general, just utter ignorance of Scripture that makes us aware more of categories given us formally or informally by family and church and media and by school than we are of biblical categories. So if I am ignorant of Old Testament stories, especially the really extended ones running from, say, Joshua through Second Chronicles, and how the Bible very subtly does not tell me what to think about a person necessarily in the way that certain music might play in a movie when someone comes on screen, but instead shows me to give myself time to judge people by their actions rather than by their self-described motivations, for example, or presuming somehow that they all have good self-described motivations, then I begin to learn in a different way about human beings that to consider them also in the categories that like Pastor Fisk was referencing, especially from the Psalms and Proverbs, that those books give me for thinking about human beings so that eventually I need to be able to say with the scripture, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I can only say that if I have learned to judge human beings in a scriptural way, that is in a spirit-inspired way, in a spiritual, to use Paul's word from 1 Corinthians, to judge things in a spiritual way. If I don't know how to do that because I don't know the Bible, then of course I'm going to be at sea or I'm going to use other standards to judge people. And we teach people not to do that, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Or don't judge by appearances. And that that's something, but there's a lot more to learn about understanding how life operates. And the scripture can actually equip you to do that. But if it's not doing it, then something else will certainly be doing it. I would say, especially knowledge of the Old Testament narratives is going to equip you to do that in a way that almost nothing else is, and will also illuminate for you everything in the New Testament, because the New Testament is only seeking to both fulfill and explain the old. So when you're thinking about, okay, well, how do I figure out who human beings are? Do you know the story of Absalom? Do you know what he was required to hide from his father? Do you know the story of Michal, David's would-be wife, or of her husband who was put away and went and walked away crying? All of these stories are going to give you, along with Abigail's behavior relative to her husband, Nabal, the fool, everything that you need. If you're not using them, then you're going to come up with something else. And the more that you use them, the better estimation of human beings that you will have. I have absolutely found in the last couple of years a rediscovery of the lore of the Old Testament and, and thinking of it in terms of lore, 
the way I used to think about, say, Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings, uh, to to memorize the names and places yeah. of things because they were fascinating, because they were appealing, because they were great story, to realize that the the Bible's got that in in manifold levels. In fact, I, I remember various video games I would play. And I would always, you know, you'd pick up this book somewhere in a cave and it would have like seven pages of like hidden story in that video game. I'd ignore that stuff. But there are people who like devote wiki sites to like, you know, detailing all the lore of these these imaginary yeah. places. Right. And I, and I realized I have the real thing and it's sitting there on a shelf. I, I studied it because I preached the New Testament gospel. But you know, you listed off a couple of those questions there. I, I have most of the answer to those, although you got me with what Absalom hid. I think I know what it is, but I'd, I'd be remiss to guess and, and be wrong. Um, but to to discover that in the narrative of Scripture, there is an inspired wisdom that I would I would say that the, the wisdom books tease this out as well, but yes, using right. conjunction with each other uh, is incredibly powerful. It is identifying Right, it identifies you as one with a certain understanding of humanity, with a view of the history of the world, and uh, it has been uh, uh, punted, uh, let slide, uh, with the advent, of course, of, of a variety of other entertainments. But it it harkens to my memory the complaints of early. 20th century Lutheran pastors about the theater and how bad the theater was and how dangerous <laughs> yeah. the theater was. And, right. you know, by the 80s, we're like, whatever, not a problem, yeah. you know. And and then yet, who does read their Bible other than perhaps a verse before their portals of prayer or some such thing? Um, who does read it uh, with an intensity? Um, the Amish, perhaps, you know. Uh, and so to recapture that, uh, I, I don't want to uh, belittle anyone who who is needing to recover this, but I think we all do well to be inspired to remember that we have the real book and that this book is the way the Holy Spirit operates. And so right. if, if you personally are, are looking to understand humanity, um, it, it is, it's going to do so much more for you uh, than, say, even Homer. And, and that, you know, I, I mentioned right. Higher Things already. There was a question in a Q&A at Higher Things, you know, can, can Christians read uh, Homer and, and these other great works? And, and the answer was fine. So, yeah, of course you can, but they're second to the Bible. It's, mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, so, so which one is taking your time? What is the value of Homer at the end of the day if you don't know who Absalom is? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is, in fact, d- demonic as well. It, it is a great yeah. distraction from those things which are there to make you strong to stand. I think, again, of, of James' language, which you know Lutherans have a lot of trouble with it because it doesn't fit our dogmatics so, so tightly as we'd like, at least not in English. But when he says, you, when you look into the law of liberty— and mm-hmm. he, he means the Old Testament, right? I mean, it means read the Old Testament and you will find uh, who Jesus is, not in some pedantic or trite way, not in a right. caricature of the Savior yes. with the sheep, but, but of the true God of Israel who has revealed himself from the beginning as the, as the lover and Savior of men. And that th- there is no fight between Jesus of Nazareth and this ancient God god of fire that that they right. are one and everything right. we we know about his love for us his grace for us his forgiveness of us it goes in harmony with that ancient mindset which again decries the wicked as effectively demonic and worthy of what they get 
even as he weeps over them when he dies for them. And, and that, that tension itself, I would say, is, is one of the hearts of wisdom. And you, you see what kind of a teacher the Lord is in his word. Obviously, he wants all of his people to know his word. He commands Israel to talk over these things in their own homes, indicating they actually know the Bible. Everyone's intended to be some sort of scripture spouting Baptist homeschooler. Okay. And when they hear that law and then discuss that law of liberty, then it also shapes you in a certain way because it is written in a certain way. So you can see that the Lord, although he knows absolutely everything, is not pedantic when he gives you wisdom. He gives you stories and wants you to learn to figure things out, to learn to make judgments, and then to learn how to apply those to life like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 when he takes the Exodus story and applies it to the life of the Corinthians. So you can only do that through repetition. And if you want to start with just listening to the Bible, there are numerous recordings. I would recommend Horner's system of Bible reading to get yourself reading large chunks of the Bible. And above all, if you want to read more, get a single column Bible. Stop trying to read double column, one verse per line Bibles extensively. It's just, it's almost impossible to do That's why no novel has ever been laid out that way. So if, if you want to read a lot at a go, you need to go single column like you would with a Charles Dickens novel. And I mean, everything else, I mean, every other book is wonderful. I have a lot of books, but I identify with a remark that was made by a guy named John Rabbi Duncan, who declares the banner of truth publishes. It's just kind of a fun guy to read. We lost you there. What's Rabbi, that? Rabbi from Rabbi Duncan. We just John lost you. John Rabbi Duncan. Yeah, there's a collection of sayings by a guy named John Rabbi Duncan from 19th century Scotland. And he said that to him, books are to him what bad habits are to other people. They are a work, they are a uh, indulgence of the flesh. <laughs> so what, what I would recommend is that you live in the Bible and you visit other books. Mm-hmm. So you have a home and you can, you can travel, please go travel, see other things but you always need to come home. So if other things are overtaking your time devoted to scripture, then then don't let them. You need to go home more often. Right. Who is Shimei and why was his hairy head brought, hoary head brought down to Sheol, right? Like you got to be able to, <laughs> That's to right. answer these questions. Yeah. All right. Next one. Uh, again, I thank you uh, for all our work in these bizarre times. He says, do you have any thoughts on the recent United States Supreme Court case West Virginia versus EPA. The opinion in this case limits the powers of the EPA and states that Congress must authorize the EPA to regulate air emissions. Somewhat relatedly, Japan plans on restarting its nuclear reactors and Germany plans on restarting its coal power plants. Do you think that the climate change movement is now facing reality with the uncertainty and the chaos surrounding the energy markets? Lastly, do you have any thoughts on USSC case Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the opinion of which effectively overturns Lemon versus Kurtzman? A, a true yeah. question for you there, Dr. Koontz, especially at the end. <laughs> I know, I know. Somebody else that thought about going to law school at one time. On the, on the, in the case of the first one, West Virginia v. EPA, that is fascinating because it may rearrange the nature of the regulatory state in saying that the legislative branch needs to play a much bigger role. That is, the popularly elected representatives need to play a much bigger role in the way that everyday life is regulated by the 
absolutely enormous federal government. The, so the repercussions are potentially obviously dependent on the, the vagaries and, and strangenesses of politics, especially in an election year. They're potentially huge. But, I mean, we'll see what happens. The substance of what ha- could happen is that the legislative branch takes much more ownership over the functioning of the executive. It's actually meant to. They're the ones who are meant to send us into armed conflicts. Of course, they don't really functionally. But similarly, in a domestic sphere, they're the ones who are meant to decide the way that life is regulated so that our liberties can be preserved in which you know a government bureaucracy like the EPA or Bureau of Land Management or something just obviously has less interest because they're not answerable to us in the same way. They're answerable to one another for the maintenance of their salaries and benefits. So that's that's that one. I, I don't think that the climate change people are necessarily facing reality. I think we see that in the stubbornness of the Dutch government and the EU and their opposition to the farmer protests in the Netherlands. I think that they are facing resistance for the first time and that people are becoming more aware of these things or that it's not just a joke, you know, like, oh, we're going to, you know, they want to see bugs. It's kind of fruitful for the media to put out those memes years in advance where it becomes sort of a joke and then it can move instead of being a shock, it can be a joke first. So then when it becomes something that seems more realistic, it it's like, oh, well, I've been hearing about this maybe as a joke for five years. So now I'm willing to consider, am I going to put crickets on my burger instead of beef? So I think climate change is simply receiving as it gets bigger as an obvious like policy item. It's just receiving a lot more ex- uh, resistance. Yeah, I um, mean, you got the, yeah, other, go the other case. Yeah, but, I, got the other I mean, one. it really is a question for me. Can anything stop the ESG juggernaut short of uh, massive death? And is is that not I mean, that is one of the, the narratives. Is that not actually the goal that a, a lowered population by any means is what is necessary for human survival? And so the true leader, the man who hones the will to power will understand this and, and not worry about, well, statistics, uh, but will push forward with what is good for to use another kind of edge of it Mother Earth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any any number of things could stop it. I mean, in the in the sense where the the cushion between international goals and everyday needs is just a lot thinner than it is in the West, such as in Sri Lanka. Those protests are both about farmers, but they're also about fuel prices and about food availability and a lot of other things, right? And so, when the the thinner the cushion gets, the thinner their ability to operate in a relatively unchecked way gets. So, I mean, something unstable here about the future of both ESG, which we've talked about, climate change as a, as a policy item, climate change as something where every time it's hot in the Northeast, which has, in fact, generally a humid climate, according to Kirpin climate types, humid continental or oceanic climate, sometimes it gets up to 95 degrees. And now we have people coming on NPR every time that happens and talking about how the climate is warming and, you know, all the eels are the American eels are dying in New England and whatever else. As that ramps up, that's only believable and its goals are only achievable if the cushion for people's everyday lives is nice and thick, right? You can tell people who are sort of fat and happy 
lots of falsehood. When people are not fat and happy, problems ramp up for governing authorities much faster. So every time, if you look in even just the past two centuries, every time there is an economic downturn, you get not only labor unrest, but somewhere in the world, like in 1837 or the 1930s, you get some form of civil war or civil unrest. So the question is, how thick is that cushion for people's everyday lives? And that'll give you some index of what's going to happen or could happen politically, civilly in a given place. Um, the cushion is still pretty thick for most people in the United States. That's why people still joke about how they want us to eat bugs or these crazy people that are obsessed with recycling or something. It's not It's not just going to stay on that level. And it certainly won't stay on that level if we're not conscious in our opposition to such things. Yeah, so, do you want to so, you, you go ahead? Well, just somehow the uh, the recent news about the IRS stockpiling ammo and hiring 87,000 new workers um, just just all seems to be in the same ballpark for me. <laughs> no. I, well, I mean, to me, the yeah, those big hirings at the IRS do not bode well for the government. And we we have listeners, one listener I'm thinking of in particular who knows more about the IRS than like anyone else. So maybe we should talk to him sometime on the show. But that doesn't bode well for the I mean, if the government is like, oh, we need to squeeze our small debtors. Yeah. That's um that's not a that's not a good signal. I mean it may just be a signal of sheer cruelty. That's possible. But it's also possible that it's a that I mean that that's what you do when you yourself are running out of assets is that you collect. So we'll, mm. we'll I mean we'll see what happens. Yeah that makes sense. You want to talk so Bremerton Kennedy, now yeah, Kennedy versus Bremerton school district yeah, and then so, the overturning of Lemon versus Kurtzman. Yeah, Lemon v. Kurtzman is is about tests of public exercise of religion. That's that's what this is about because the dispute between the majority and the uh, dissenting minority in Kennedy v. Bremerton was about both the nature of public prayer. This will be familiar to Missouri Synod listeners. Is it okay to pray? Uh, are we praying? That's a that's a twenty one year old joke now, but some of you are picking up on it, and. It, what, what is in the nature of prayer and then what is in the nature of the free exercise of religion. And I think the basic philosophical difference between the seemingly permanent court majority with the current nine justices, so as long as that's the court, it's a permanent majority, and the minority is not only about the nature of public prayer, but it, it is a bias, just in a sheer purely intellectual sense of that word it is a bias in favor of free exercise over a a previous bias a long-standing bias which is what the left is especially complaining about a long-standing bias in favor of worrying about any prayer in public potentially being an establishment of religion which is what you're going to find if you read the, the majority opinion in, in lemon v kurtzman as well as many other such cases flowing into it or out of it in the past 40 or 50 years is it a, 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 a terror that anytime, especially a Christian, prays in public, that somehow a school district or a or a, a state like Nebraska or Florida or the federal government is somehow endorsing Christianity and therefore prohibiting the free exercise of other people's religions. So there the current court majority is much more in favor of this coach is praying and people are free not to pray 
And he's not praying in the name of the school district. He's simply praying while being somebody who collects a paycheck from the school district. So he is free to do so. And I, I think that that, I mean, I, I personally agree that that much more protects the burden of not only what the framers said, uh, also where they explained themselves or where their immediate disciples explained themselves, like in Joseph Story's explanation of the Constitution of the United States, but also that it preserves what is obviously what Americans actually did. So prior to the 1960s, no one interpreted the First Amendment to the federal Constitution as a prohibition on Bible reading and praying the Lord's Prayer in public school. That comes out of a single opinion in Abington v. Shem. So we have been, everything that is referred to as, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> here, here's the rhetorical trick, if I can zoom out this way. The trick is to take something that anyone with two brain cells to rub together knows isn't very old and to act like it's always been the case and therefore that opposition to it is obviously absurd. So that's what they're doing with the disestablishment of any religion whatsoever in American public life in the past 50 years. They do this with every story about gentrification, acts like black people with Southern accents have lived in Brooklyn since time immemorial. I mean, this is the, that that's the trick. You take what is politically advantageous to you and you act like it is obvious and natural and came out of the ground at the creation. So any change from that is obviously bad. That's that's the trick. So they're pulling that with with all kinds of things, and and that's what they're pulling in, in you know their anger about Roe v. Wade's right. Uh, right. Being, so yeah. if I can jump on that, yeah. Just yesterday, uh, the third of August, the uh, POTUS office announcing that the Dobbs decision is an unconstitutional act by the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. Which I'm not sure right. where that one ends. Right. You pull that thread. That's and the courts don't exist, right? I mean, is that effectively what right. they're saying? Well, well, they don't. Yeah. And they do. Well, they, they certainly don't have the jurisdiction that they otherwise would. So, I mean, Andrew Jackson did that to the Supreme Court. You know, if, if that's a decision, let them enforce it. But hmm. the question is, is about the relationship between the branches. And if the left is going to do that, they, they need to give up on the idea that somehow the judiciary is sacrosanct. And like we have all of these squabbles, but then we have the priests or the Sanhedrin and they decide what is reality because they themselves are now dissenting from the Sanhedrin. So we'll, we'll see how this plays out. It's certainly not clear from the federal constitution that anyone is supposed to believe that the judiciary decides the nature of political reality in the United States. And, and yet for 50 years we did. That is for, how we've been operating. For 50 years we yes, did. This is the right. amazing thing is like, so Roe versus Wade happens and all the entire right just kind of rolls over as like, well, yeah. I guess that's the law now. And, and now we see how it plays on the other side. Uh, yep. They just ignore it. So yeah. what, what is the what is the true uh, traditionalist, conservative, constitutionalist to, to do going forward? I mean, do we do we take this card and say, I guess the courts can rule, but the state or the locality still still says and does what it does, let them enforce it. I mean, I kind of I kind of get that. Um, yeah. At the very least, I think we have to realize that no matter what we do, a certain religious fervor of political theory is yeah. going to do anything it can lie, cheat, steal, kill in order to have its right. way. Yeah, they, they don't care about the text of the Constitution. 
but they're also not being hysterical when they are worried at both federal and state levels about they're going to get rid of contraception. They're going to get rid of gay marriage. They're going to get rid of, you know, interracial schooling because all of that relies on the same constitutional framework of the judiciary says it. And it doesn't matter what anyone on the ground voted for. I mean, remember, even California voted by a supermajority against gay marriage, California. So imagine how people in Oklahoma felt, right? So they're not being hysterical in trying to then codify these things, maybe through the House, and then trying to get, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to sign on in the Senate, whatever, because they know what the right seems to be ignorant of or naive about, which is our current functioning as a country is completely dependent on subservience to the judiciary. Mm -hmm. And if they themselves cannot render that subservience to the judiciary, then they're going to make sure that what they want gets achieved by some other means. So the advice to, to anybody who's on the other side of abortion or gay marriage or whatever, is that you need to be at least as realistic as your enemies are being about how to get what you want politically speaking. And that is where, you know, they're going after, for instance, state legislatures in states that are, they're often kind of fringy conservative states, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where the state legislature is firmly Republican. And they're saying, oh, they're being unfair, or they're, they're redistricting, and they're trying to abolish Democrats from the state. Well, the reason those state those state legislatures are being realistic and, and beginning to play hardball because hardball is the only kind of baseball the left plays. Okay. They they don't they don't they don't play beer league softball ever. And if you're playing beer league softball and you know they're playing major league baseball, you are going to get destroyed, which is what has generally happened to the right. So we only got about five minutes left. I don't know if we want to start a new question from uh, the listenership there. Uh, do you want to circle back and tie any of these things together? The way that they are tied together, I think, is via the word realism, which is used in all kinds of different realms. I mean, it has a certain meaning in metaphysics that it doesn't have in foreign policy, but it does involve a much closer attention to detail and to what is achievable than idealism which is, I think, consistently disappointed in practice because people do not, even its professors, do not measure up to those ideals. And reality fails to be what the ideal projected. A lot of Christians especially seem to be idealistic about other human beings because they believe that is somehow part of the gospel. Now, this really has no basis whatsoever in scripture, but that it's some part of the gospel to always think the best of everyone else. What's the Eighth Commandment, um, man? What Jesus are you talking himself about? does not, right? Jesus. Well, did you know? How does Jesus himself deal with different kinds of human beings, mm. with different questions, different motivations, different stations in life? How does he handle them? Does he handle them all in the same naive sort of way with which we are familiar? Because it's so pleasant when the people at Chick Fil A are taught to say, "My pleasure." after everything that you say. And that that is nice. I mean, that's fine. I just can't go through life as if I'm working at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. So there is a realism that is necessary in life about other people that therefore I think, I mean, even to go all the way back to the first question, you have to remember that people have their own limitations. 
And you could sit around complaining about other people's limitations without end because they are always there to be discovered. The only way to actually achieve anything is to accept those limitations, to work with them when you can, to leave them aside when you can't work with them, and to move on with what you know you're actually given to do. When you do that, life is fruitful and people are not nearly so disappointing because you don't need them to be amazing. You just need them to do whatever it is that they can do that God's given them to do. So I think that I think that realism, whether we're talking about politics or uh, marriage or anything else, is more necessary than ever because idealism has gotten us I don't know where. I mean, we were so nice and and they went on murdering babies in the United States. So maybe being nice about everything to everyone all of the time didn't actually uh, wasn't maybe the the policy priority for life that we thought it was. Well, I want to come back to that, though, then on both being nice as the 11th commandment on the uh, the twisting of Dr. Luther's. What does this mean within the eighth commandment to mean that the eighth commandment is lie to cover up the evil of others and don't admit that it is what it yeah. is so that right. everyone can smile and pretend nothing is wrong. And the, the real um, dogmatizing of that in uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod theology and practice. And I think that has had far reaching consequences that we can't even really imagine. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, we should, we should be better about this on paper, but no, 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 no. Like there is a spiritual illness here that is, it gets back to that malaise, that lukewarmness that I I mentioned before, uh, where we are willing to, to sit and watch great evils take place in our family, in our congregation, in our neighborhood and and sort of chalk it all up to well I guess that's the way it goes but I'm just gonna smile and, and put a good face on it all or or I mean I remember one time uh, trying to, to convince uh, one of my members uh, long ago another place um, you know that that when you have lemons make lemonade isn't really the biblical answer to anything all right it's, it's, you, know, <laughs> you know and she was like well, what are you supposed to do and I'm like well you know before sugar you just didn't harvest them you know you just didn't lemons weren't that useful you know and and so um to, to really hit this hard from your end you know I'd appreciate your your wisdom on it not not just like what should we do but what does a congregation and a family look like where putting the best construction on everything means striving for the good together and not slandering other people needlessly right. as opposed right. to hiding things under the carpet lest we have to deal with them. Right. Yeah. And and it may it may be comfortable to be lukewarm or not to mention things or not to handle things, but you have to remember that your God is a consuming fire. So he is not lukewarm. He's not backing off or backing down. And if you want to live with him, or if you are trying to live in him, in Christ, then you need to handle things as he does. So that's why you want to pay attention to how he handles different people. But when a family or a church or even uh, a person by himself is living in a way that puts the best construction on everything or explains everything in the kindest way, that's the new translation, I suppose. You have to remember that that requires truth. Truth is of greater value than comfort or niceness. It doesn't mean that comfort or niceness are evil absolutely everywhere all of the time. 
it means that truth is of much greater value. So if you don't know the truth of something, then you also don't know how to handle it. Okay. So I think one of the problems that we have is that we value other things over truth. And then we end up lying to ourselves, even lying by omission to ourselves, refusing to see certain things or to put them into patterns. And then because we don't do that, then we end up not knowing the truth and then are shocked when the truth arises eventually. So the greatest value has to be placed in one's own life as in anything that you do with other people on truth. And then other things can fall into line with those things, knowing when to say which truth, knowing how to handle this or that person. But the truth has to have ultimate value, both about facts, situations, but also about people. So just because you pretended to ignore that about this other person for the past four years doesn't mean it's not going to bite both of you eventually. So then um, uh, last last question here, yeah. and we can take again maybe five minutes on it still. Uh, if you really want a red pill into reality and out of idealism, is that possible while continuing to, to suckle at the breast of of any mainstream media entertainment. And I would include in this Twitter. I would include in this um, any of the, even the alt versions of that. Mm-hmm. My own experience continues to be that even, even as I try to direct my use of Twitter toward discovering real news, um, knowing what's going on geopolitically so that when it affects my family's finances, I'm prepared for it. Mm-hmm. I can't help but feel, and that's a pretty weak argument, but I can't help but feel that I'm being manipulated. <laughs> and something tells me that yeah. if I were to just deal with what's in front of me, I would find far greater joy in what I do yeah. day to day and be yeah. less despairing with regard to even the worst news that I would get. Right. Yeah. And I think that's totally right. Because I think even if you are getting correct information from the internet, okay, wherever it is that you that you find that and, um, you know, I'm grateful to the internet for a variety of things. But if you are there, and most of your life is taken up with getting that correct information, it will induce passivity and despair in you that that's gonna happen. So you have to learn to shut things off if you would be fruitful. That's that's the way it goes. And I think it's the constant it's not it's not necessarily the kind of information because there are certain people that they get the right idea about something, but then they don't know what to do with it and they just keep taking in more of that right idea. And that's I get and it seems fine, but what it creates is a passivity. And then the passivity never stays where it is. It it breeds a certain a discontentment, malaise, rage, or it creates certain ideas about those good things like marriage or the church or the traditional liturgy or something that then harden into a, a kind of anger at other people for not having those opinions, which is not consonant with the truth. Look at James's description of heavenly wisdom, compare it to the description of merely earthly or demonic wisdom that does not come down from above. And you'll learn to tell the difference between these two things. So it can give you the right opinion, but it doesn't give it to you in a way that is 
fruitful or being put into practice in your life, like Proverbs and visions, wisdom actually does get put into practice. So yeah, then it creates despair, it creates whatever else that whereby the good thing itself turns rotten, right? Like you, you collected too much manna and you hoarded it on the Sabbath and then it begin to it begin to stink and and to breed worms because you didn't use the gift that God was giving you in the right way. You're listening to a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> 